This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. How did people in the Renaissance use medical recipes? Which ingredients were used and what for? And what was their impact on the human body? PR Officer Kim König and Research Fellow for Colonial and Global History, Miriam Brosius, talked to Stefan Hans about his research project, which uses the scientific analysis and historical contextualization of the chemical fingerprints of Renaissance recipe users to offer a new understanding of material cultures, medicine, and the history of the body in early modern Germany. Stefan Hans is currently a senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of Manchester. In August, he will take up a new position as Professor of Early Modern History, and in September he will start as Deputy Director and Scientific Lead of the John Rylands Research Institute in Manchester. Hello, Stefan. Thank you so much for joining us on the GHIL podcast today. My name is Kim Koenig, and I'm the PR officer, and I'm joined by Miriam Brosius, who is a research fellow at the Institute for Global and Colonial History. We would love to talk a bit about your research, about your lecture that you held here at the beginning of the year, and would love to learn a bit more about that. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's ongoing research, it's an ongoing project. What we do is we sample and analyze the biochemical fingerprints of 16th and 17th century German users of prints, prints that contain medical recipes, prints that contain cosmetic recipes, recipes related to healthcare, to well-being. And yeah, when, when handling such books, so when following the instructions of recipes, when making recipes themselves, or when writing down comments on the margins of the page, these early modern users left behind invisible chemical traces on the surface of the page. And that's exactly what we sample. That's what we analyze using a mix of methods. So We combine scientific analysis of proteins, amino acid chains, so the basic chemical and material elements of life, with advanced imaging technologies to identify, to examine stains, historical user marks, the marginalia that might have faded away in the meantime. And we combine such object-based analysis with, yeah, with in-depth archival research on contemporary sources, medical, botanical treatises, herbals, the records of medical practitioners, recipe collections, and so on. Your research project is really collaborative in nature. So it's not only your department, the humanities, but it's much more an interdisciplinary collaboration between the humanities and the sciences. Could you tell us a bit more how that collaboration came into being? Yes, we combine the scientific analysis with thorough historical contextualization of these biochemical fingerprints. And as you said, it's a collaborative project, it's an interdisciplinary project, it's an international project that bridges the humanities and the sciences. And it's such, yeah, it's just such a privilege to work together with these amazing people, with scientific archaeologists, curators, conservators, chemists, historians, lab technicians, photographers, spring style tech design, here in particular, Gleb and Svetlana Silverstein, Pia Giorgio Rigetti have done a fantastic job in 
producing EVA film diskettes. Uh, this is really a revolutionary non-invasive sampling technique to extract such chemical information that was a bespoke production. So it entailed a lot of interdisciplinary conversations with curators, with conservators at the John Rylands Research Institute and Library in Manchester, in particular Julian Simpson and Elizabeth Carr. These results were then analyzed in laboratories in York and Oxford. Sam Presley has done a fantastic job and was really committed to this project there. And of course, the Rylands imaging team was super important. They do cutting edge, internationally leading work on multispectral imaging analysis. And that was really crucial in this context because it allowed us to capture information about historical uses of prints beyond the range of human vision. So I'm thinking in particular about user marks, faded marginalia that can only be visualized through ultraviolet and infrared wavelengths. So it's a real privilege to work with such inspiring and open-minded people. And this podcast is very much also my opportunity to thank them. So just for me as the non-historian in this interview, could you just let us know how you became interested in this intersection between the humanities and science? Because I think in like the yeah, more rather stereotypical mindset. It's, you know, natural scientists and um, studies of the humanities are traditionally quite separate uh, disciplines. Yeah. And I was just wondering from what I gather from your lecture is that this kind of, yeah, as you say, cutting edge technology and use of science allows you to get new insights into the context of those mm -hmm. historical sources. What's the genesis between this thinking um, as a new approach in like early modern history going beyond what you see with the visual eye and like looking at the archival material? What's the additional? I mean, I can imagine, but I'd love to hear more from you. What's, what's the additional value? What does it add to the context of the material yeah. that you're looking at? So as far as I see, there are two questions. One is about where does it come from? The other one is what does it add? So in terms of what it adds, I think there are three really main insights that we gain from this analysis in this particular project. Um, the first one is it's a story of material experimentation. So the results confirm the use of some of the ingredients detailed in the recipes on the same page, but they also show us an awful lot of alterations, experimentation, and once this chemical information is put into context with the historical record, it actually allows us to say a bit more about the motivations behind such decisions, the logics of material experimentation at that time. Another big story that we can reveal is the global circulation of early modern medical materials. We can also talk a bit more about this in a second. And then, um, so we trace a lot of um, exciting things from across the globe in this 16th century German book. And then the third one, I think, is about the impact of medical materials on Renaissance bodies. So the kind of information that we can extract from biologically active antimicrobial proteins that tell us more about the diseases that people struggled with or and also that tell us more about Renaissance bodies' responses to the remedies at that time. So these are, I think, three key stories that we take away from such research. And um, the other question was about the genesis of the project. And I'd say there are several contexts. One context is that I'm writing a book on the history of hair, hair in the early modern German and Spanish speaking world that is generously funded by the Philip Leverman Prize. And that made me read a lot of hair care recipes and that made me think a lot of recipes in general. Then I had the privilege really to organize a conference that's called Microscopic Record, it took place in 2020, 
funded by the British Academy under yeah, the difficult circumstances that this meant back then with COVID and everything that was involved. But it was a conference that brought together laboratories, scientists and historians to think about new collaborations to study early modern material cultures. And that included lectures, but it also included training sessions, especially training sessions that were tailored towards the needs of early career researchers, mid-career researchers. And one of these training sessions was about proteomics. So that made me think about proteomics and proteins a bit more. And then the third really crucial context is the John Ryan's Research Institute and Library here in Manchester. That's where the book is hold that we sampled. And that's the research institute that funded this research. And that really testifies to the vibrant research environment there, then an environment that really, yeah, an environment where novel interdisciplinary scientific approaches to special collections can thrive. And as I said, it's an ongoing project. So on the one hand, it results in an article that's currently in review, but it's very much a pilot study, part of a bigger external grant application. And hopefully there will be even more exciting news to share in the future. You just mentioned the global circulation of materials and as the colonial global historian in the room, of course, I would like to know in how far you see your project as a contribution, not just to global history, but also to colonial history. Yes. So we have extracted a number of really exciting globally circulating materials on this 16th century German print. Tortoise shell, for instance, um, ginseng, protein traces of hippopotamus bones. Um, this can, I mean, that's really relevatory, uh, really, really interesting to see because on the one hand, it tells us something about early modern German material culture and medical material culture being embedded in broader global circuits, broader global flows at that time. Um, so ginseng, for instance, was used to dye hair blonde, hippopotamus uh, bones were used to manufacture dentures. So it really globalizes the history of early modern Germany on the one hand. On the other hand, this invites further reflections on the global history and the colonial history of extraction of natural resources at that time. Um, interventions, really unparalleled invention to that extent into wildlife that really changes what Sujitsuba Sundaram, for instance, calls the frontier, the interspecies frontier at that time. And these are the global and colonial histories that can be revealed by further pursuing such research. I was also really intrigued listening to your lecture by the holistic approach that people at the time used in terms of the human body. So you talk about nutrition, you talk about teeth, you talk about hair. So it really seemed like to be a sort of almost encompassing program to heal and to improve the condition of the human body, if I understood correctly. And so I wondered what the most fascinating find in that respect was for you in terms of how people approached the human body at the time and also what we can take away from hmm. that approach for today. Well, I'd say the, the human body was considered much more unstable, much more porous and much more embedded in an environment, a material environment in cosmological contexts, but also in material dependencies inside and outside the body. Um, I was very thrilled and surprised to find these biologically active antimicrobial proteins, I have to say. So these are proteins that play a key role in the human immune system. They tell us more about the diseases that these people struggled with and fought against when they turned towards these recipes. And they actually tell us how the body responded towards these 
recipes. So what recipes did to Renaissance body? Are they you know, the extent to which they changed the materiality of the body? And that speaks very much towards these early modern understandings of the porous body, the body that's embedded into wider material context, the body that can be penetrated through the materiality of recipes and whose actual material constitution may be changed at that time. Um, it is a much more holistic approach, as you say, and it invites also a much more holistic approach in terms of methods on how we study such materials and the kinds of ways that we reflect upon well-being as socially embedded knowledge and as materially situated knowledge. One question that came to my mind was also when you said that you can study the alterations that people made to the recipes. I wonder what your takeaway is from the changes that you notice. Is it the availability, general availability of certain materials, or is this very much a social component, a class component? Did people have to alter recipes depending on what they could get their hands on, what they could afford? Yeah, I was just wondering, because yeah. I remember you did say this is like a very common household object, uh, these recipe books. Well, that is a time that is excited about experimentation with the material world in many regards, in terms of gardening, in terms of healthcare, in terms of everything, really, in terms of consumption, in every regard. Um, and yes, this hints at stories of social status that hints at stories of access to materials but more generally it really hints also it, it points us to a general enthusiasm in the epistemic exploration of material culture and the thrive and enthusiasm to experiment and what that meant for these people's minds at that time and how crucial that was for elaborating yeah, key concepts of the time in Renaissance Germany, such as well-being, for instance, such as fashion. Just before we wrap this up, I just wanted to ask you, as we are the German Historical Institute in London, what your connection to Great Britain is. You're obviously researching in Great Britain. The lecture is on early modern Augsburg. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm German living in the UK. <laughs> um, so in the meantime, it's one of the places that I would call my home. And the German Historical Institute was really key in this story of biographical transition, I'd say. So the German Historical Institute was the place where I had an internship in 2010. And retrospectively, it was very much the place that introduced me to UK academia. I was then a research assistant of Andreas Gestrich, back then director of the GHI, um, Dorothea McEwing at the Warburg for five years. And then I came back again and again to the UK um, after this really amazing experience as a postgrad student at the Warburg, as a postdoc in Cambridge, where I had the privilege to work with some of the most inspiring researchers in early modern material culture studies. And then I was hired as a senior lecturer here in Manchester 2018, which comes with the privilege of working with amazing material culture collections, such as at the John Rylands Research Institute and Library, that really makes a difference in terms of propelling such novel interdisciplinary research. So, yeah, it's a real privilege to work internationally with collections across discipline with amazing institutions. And that's also my chance to say thank you to the entire GHI team, not only for having invited me to this lecture, but really for the work and the initiatives that are happening there. I know that you will continue to make a difference for researchers in the future. And that's very, very important work and a very, very important signal, especially in the times that we're living in.
Thank you. I think that's a very positive note to end on. Um, and we hope our listeners will enjoy this interview and the lecture as much as we did. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.